Brothers and sisters, you can turn with me in your Bibles. We're going to be in Acts chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 12. As you're flipping there in your Bibles, I want you to think about one of, the, one of the questions that I love to ask people when they're new to River Oaks is, how did you, how'd you end up here? And I don't mean by that, like, did you take Sevierville Road or a different way to get here? <laughs> you know, and you might say, man, I've got so many kids. I have no idea how we got here, but we're here now. It was crazy, but we're here. But now what I, what do I mean is, how did, how did you end up here? How did the Lord lead you to River Oaks? It's so interesting to hear about the way in which God orchestrates each one of you to walk through these doors, to join, uh, you know, in, um, in fellowship together with this church, to be a member. For some of you, the church is right next door, and you just had to cross across the street like Jim and Enda Davis. For others, you lived in another state, and the Lord led you to our area, maybe by job or some families, they, they saw River Oaks online and decided to, to move and be a part of our church. Some of you have attended many churches throughout your life, and, and for others, River Oaks is the place where you first heard the gospel and believed. Some of you are here this morning because a friend invited you from work to come, or, or someone on one of your sports teams said, hey, I have a church. I'd love to invite you to be a part of it. And for some of you, you were a part of the original church plant from back when Fellowship planted River Oaks in 2001. So you've been here from the beginning. But what's exciting to me in all of these stories is to hear how God has gripped your hearts, how he's powerfully led you to be a part of this body, to hear of his faithfulness throughout difficult periods in your lives. Brothers and sisters, each one of you is a walking testimony of the faithfulness and the power of God to save, and the, and the power that he has to unify us together as one body, one church, to be able to draw all kinds of people to himself. And so as we look at our text this morning, I think we'll see very clearly this as the main idea, that as we gather and as we go, we have every reason to be confident in the power of the gospel. As the Lord brings us together and as he sends us out, we can be confident that God is going to do very important, miraculous, great things, including bringing people to himself. And we see this very clearly, you know, this, this power of the gospel and the reason we should be confident in two different gatherings here. In verses one through six, we see the companions of Paul gathered together. They themselves are a reason for us to be confident in the power of the gospel. And then in verses seven through 12, as the church and Troas has, has come together, and as Eutychus is raised from the dead, we have great confidence because of this and the power of the gospel. And so, as I said, look with me in Acts chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to read through verse 12. So after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions... And had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to, about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So Pater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus. And Gaius of Derby and Timothy. And the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These were on ahead 
and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them for a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. That might be the understatement of that passage right there. They were not a little comforted. So as we look to these gathered companions, these, these, these traveling partners with Paul, we're going to see that as they're gathered together, and as they're going out, we have, very, we have every reason to be confident in the power of the gospel through these men. And so chapter 20 begins with Paul on the move, right? After the riots in Ephesus, he's encouraging the brothers there. And he sets out to encourage the churches, not just in Ephesus, but in Macedonia and in Greece. So that he could you know, strengthen them one last time because he's not sure if he's going to be able to return. In verse 2, we hear that Paul arrives in Greece. This is in the city of Corinth. And he stays there for three months. Most likely, he's staying in Corinth because he's arrived at the time of the season when the, the weather is really difficult, especially to be able to get to Jerusalem, which is ultimate, his ultimate goal. And so he stays there throughout the winter and into the spring. But I don't, I don't know how you use your downtime. But Paul, as he's in Corinth, he's doing multiple things. First and foremost, he's, he's encouraging the church there. He's written them multiple letters. He's, he's had an encouraging report. And so he's, he's trying to build up the church. But also in this three-month period, in these just couple of words that Luke mentions, don't miss, he writes the, the book of Romans. He writes this, this book that is one of the most encouraging, strengthening, helpful books of all of them in the Bible. I bet many of you would say that Romans chapter 8 is your favorite chapter in the Bible, or at least in the New Testament, and this is where he writes it. Every phrase that Paul or that Luke lists matters here. And so as he's in Corinth, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He's desiring to do that, but it turns out there's a plot against him by the Jews. And so instead of setting sail to Jerusalem, it says he actually goes up through Macedonia, and he, he's going a different way. So he's not killed there. And as you look at verses 4 through 6, you see that Luke tells us of Paul's route, and that ultimately takes him to Troas. This is the part of the trip that, Paul, that Luke is present for. You see this in verses 5 and 6 where, where he uses the terms us, and in verse 6 he says we. So at some point Luke has joined back up with them. And right in the middle of these travel details, Luke takes the time to list out Paul's traveling companions. He says there's men from Macedonia and Berea, you know, Asia and, and Lystra and, and on and on. He lists these men that are traveling with him very particularly in verse 4. And, and it makes you think, 
This is obviously important because he, he lists it for us. Why would he do this? What does Luke want us to notice here in these men? Well, I think what he wants us to see is that these men come from the places where Paul has already preached. They are the fruits of his labor, the fruits of Paul and his fellow ministers that they've gone out to take the gospel to the Gentiles. These are the places where they've gone. Places like Macedonia and Galatia, Lystra and Asia. And these men who are coming, they're partnering with Paul, first and foremost, because they've benefited from his ministry. But the second thing that we see is in Romans 15, 25, Paul tells us that he's gathering an offering for the church in Jerusalem. And many of the churches in these areas were partnering together with him. And so these men are representatives of that church, sent out to, to carry the offering, but to be a means of encouragement to the church in Jerusalem, to send greetings and care, but also to partner with Paul as he goes to take the gospel, to encourage existing churches and to build up new ones. And as we see in these companions, as we think about their diversity, we see the power of the gospel on full display. There is a multifaceted glory in the different kinds of people that God brings into his church, each one reflecting the beauty of Christ Jesus and the pursuing love of God to save them and to save us. These men, though vastly different in so many ways, are united they're no longer strangers and aliens to one another. And specifically, they're no longer strangers and aliens to God. But now, because of the power of the gospel, they are brothers in Christ. They've been made one family, not by the nature of their birth, but by the blood of the Lamb. Each one is, is pursuing together Christ and serving as an illustration of the gospel's power. They're united because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope and one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is what they are united in. It's through their faith that they are brought together. In all likelihood, these men would have probably never had relationships with one another apart from their shared bond in Christ. And yet, here they are, standing side by side for the sake of Jesus, carrying the gospel into unknown places and building up faithful churches. And they have one burning purpose that ties them together to share the love of God with others as they've first been shown. And so as you think about this, these, these people being brought together, this unlikely union of, of brothers, why don't you think about your own life for a minute and, and just think about who has the Lord united you with through the gospel that you just didn't expect? You know, it could be someone that's vastly different age than you, maybe someone much older than you or younger than you that's been a great encouragement in your walk with Jesus. Maybe it's your spouse. You weren't expecting, and yet God brought you together. There's all sorts of ways in which God brings unlikely people together, but it can be easy for us to forget how remarkable our salvation really is. And to forget how powerful God is in forming his church. But let's not do that. 
I want you to, I want you to think about your own growth group for a minute. Think about their faces and their names. While you may not have a, a, an Aristarchus or a Trophimus in your group, in my growth group, I, I don't have those guys. But I do have Ken, who's from uh, the Washington area. I've got Scott, who's from Canada. We've got Donnie Kent from California, Jordan from Indiana, Kent from West Virginia, Jonathan from Alabama, and me from Maryville. God has brought all of us together into this group, an unlikely group of brothers who love Jesus, who've been united by the gospel, and who desire to make him known. And the same is true for our church, brothers and sisters. God has brought together all of us to this place. Just think about this. Of all the churches in the world, God has brought you to this place this morning to be united together with these brothers and sisters for the sake of Christ. And he has prepared good works that our church would do, and he prepared them before the foundation of the world, that we would be a part of his plan for reaching Blount County and evangelizing the nations. And we are here because of the power of Jesus to unite us. Our church has an unlikely assortment of people with different skills, life experiences, family backgrounds, jobs, passions, heritages. You know, just think about how amazing it is we exist as a church here made up of Cajuns, Chicagoans, and Californians. People from Boston, which I can't do the accent very well. <laughs> we got the Pacific Northwest and we got the Deep South. We sound different. We root for different sports teams and football teams. We have wildly different tastes in so many different things. And yet, we are united in the most important way possible. Through the blood of the Lamb, we are made one family, united under His headship for His purposes, for His glory, and to dwell with Him forever. The diversity of Paul's men might look different than our diversity. I'll tell you what, our unity is the same. We have the same Christ. The one who is seated even now on the throne interceding for us, as Romans 8 tells us. The same Christ who is the door of the sheep and the good shepherd. The one who says he is the way, the truth, and the life. The one who says he is the resurrection and the life. And right after he says that, he raises Lazarus from the dead. This is the Christ whom we have and serve. We have the same gospel message that all who place their faith in Jesus alone for the, for the forgiveness of their sins will be saved. We have the same Holy Spirit who indwells us, empowering us, strengthening us, allowing us to go and serve faithfully. The one who serves the seal of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. God himself dwelling within us. And we have the same united purpose. To declare the gospel. To make disciples of all nations. And to demonstrate the Father's love in spirit and truth. We are united with these brothers in the way that it counts most. And there's no underestimating or stopping as you see it, the power of the gospel on display. You can think about men who served together in the military. You know, maybe they were a part of a, a major battle. Those men will, will continue to gather together many times for something like 30, 40, 50, 60 years after the event. Many of them not missing uh, an opportunity to gather together. Why is that? 
Well, they have a brotherhood that has been bonded together, that's been forged in battle. They have a brotherhood that, that caused them to want to get together. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage us that we have a brotherhood that's even greater than that. We have a bond and a unity that is much stronger than even that. And we don't have to just gather together once per year, but we can gather together every week to glorify and serve and love our God together. And so as we see this, as we see these gathered companions of Paul, we have every reason to be confident in the power of the gospel. But we also see that in the gathered church, in verses 7 through 12, we see a very similar story. Look back with me in verses 7 through 12. It says this, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep, as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Man, so good. Verse 7 tells us that the church... In Troas is, is gathered together with Paul and his companions on the first day of the week to break bread. You know, this isn't just a social gathering. They're not gathering together just to have a going away party for Paul. But this is the church gathered together for worship. Paul here is preaching and he's teaching. Both of those ideas are conveyed in what's described by Luke. He's, he's teaching, preaching, but he's encouraging, he's talking, they're, they're asking questions and discussing things that are most important. And they're sharing communion together, as is pointed to in verse 11, where it says after midnight they broke bread. Literally in the Greek it means, it says the bread, meaning communion. They're taking communion together. And this here is the first mention in the New Testament of the church gathering together on the first day of the week, Sunday, instead of meeting on Saturday, the Sabbath. They're meeting on Sunday because this is the central day for Christians to gather together because it is the way that we celebrate and commemorate the resurrection of Jesus. He rose on Sunday, and so we gather together on Sunday. And so the word is being proclaimed. Communion is central to this gathering. So much so that, that not even a death or a resurrection would keep them from celebrating and taking it together. And so as Luke tells us of the events of Troas, we come to understand that Paul is intending to leave the very next day, the next morning. So this is the last night that he has with these believers. So what would you do? If you had one evening left to encourage your brothers and sisters at River Oaks, to strengthen them before you move away, what would that look like? You Think about those brothers and sisters again in your growth group. What would you want to say to them? How would you want to prioritize that time? Would you want to spend lots of time in the Word or in prayer? Would you spend some of the time reminiscing, telling stories, sharing about what God has done and remembering those great things? 
what would be the focus of your time? I can guarantee you that it would be on Christ and on the kingdom of God as you're gathered together. And as a preacher and an apostle, Paul wants to maximize this opportunity. So he conducts what I like to think of as a turbo training. We have these on, you know, uh, weekends at River Oaks, Fridays and Saturdays where we gather together and we try to cram as much as we can teaching wise into that time. Or maybe you think about it as more like secret church. We participated in those simulcasts before where David Platt will have a topic and for six hours he will develop and help us to see these themes traced throughout the Bible and how it gives, um, you know, teaching and instruction on that particular topic for the evening. It's, it's a lot like drinking from a fire hose. It's almost impossible to get it all in, and yet it's so good. You're like, give me more. I want more of this. I bet it has this kind of feel to it. Paul is wanting to equip and encourage this church. He's trying to cover all that he possibly can in the time that he has left. And so he uses teaching, and he uses discussion. And they're feasting on the word, and they're feasting on this communion meal together. And so Paul, as fits the occasion, prolongs his speech until midnight. And as we look at verses 8 and 9, Luke gives us a hint of what's to come. And verse 8 seems a little bit strange, honestly, if you look at it for just a second. Like, why does he give us that detail? There are many lamps in the upper room when we were gathered, where we were gathered. Okay. But it makes more sense when you look to the very next verse, verse 9. See, these lamps would have caused the room to heat up. Potentially, the room would have gotten stuffy and smoky. And so it says in verse 9, it tells us that there's a young man named Eutychus who's sitting on the windowsill. It's most likely that Eutychus, you know, it's, it's midnight now. He goes to the window for two different reasons. He's wanting to stay awake and the, the air, you know, coming in is helping him to do that. But also he's wanting to be able to breathe clearly because it's a little stuffy in the room. And so he goes to the place where he can sit and be refreshed as he's listening to the teaching. There's no glass in these windows. And so air comes in, but it's also dangerous. And the, the term that you, Luke uses here for uh, this young man is, is uh, it's, it's a person who essentially is, is a kid that's somewhere between 8 and 12 years old. This makes him around the age of my son Henry. And, and Henry's bedtime is definitely before midnight, though he might tell you otherwise. Do not believe him. <laughs> but... You know, his bedtime is much earlier than that. And, and I can imagine Eutychus's was as well, right? They would, they would get up with the sun to come up and they would go to bed fairly early because it got dark and they didn't have electricity and tons of light. So they would tend to, to have their, their you know, time of sleep and work in sync with the sunlight. But Eutychus here is, is trying his best to stay awake. And so Luke isn't trying to condemn Eutychus for falling asleep as if he's not a good sermon listener. In fact, I think what you see in the passage is Eutychus is doing his best to, to actually pay attention because he cares about what is, what is being said. And I think also Luke is not trying to condemn long sermons. So, you know, <laughs> you can't use that as a, as a reason to say, Chris, you got to shorten that up a little bit. The point is the centrality of the gospel message. That's his point. And the power of Jesus and the gospel to raise someone from the dead. This is what he's highlighting. This is why he takes the time to tell this story as opposed to other things that have been happening. And so just picture it. You know, think about uh, you know, when we're gathered together for the candlelight service on Christmas Eve. You know, that's a different kind of service for us. It's nighttime. 
You know, we've got candles, the lighting's a little bit lower. And imagine there's a, a young boy sitting on the balcony right there. And during the middle of the service, he falls off and dies. You know, just think about what a, what a horrible turn for a worship service. Eutychus falls out of the window from the third story and he dies. Luke's a physician and he wrote verse 9. Verse 9 reads a little awkwardly in the ESV. But his point is, at the very end there, when he's taken up dead, he is dead. He's not mostly dead. He's not partially dead. He's fully dead. He's gone. And you can just think, like, what would it have been like in that service when that happened? You know there were tears being spilled and wells filling the streets. They know this young man. They care about him, and he's, and he's dead. And yet verse 10 tells us that Paul goes down, and he bends over the boy, and he takes him in his arms. This probably reminds you or might remind you of, of passages you've seen before in the Old Testament, like in 1 Kings 17 with Elijah and 2 Kings 4 with Elisha, where they lay their bodies on top of two other boys who were dead of two different women. And the same thing happens here. God raises them from the dead. They come back to life. You know, talk about the ultimate sermon illustration as Paul is speaking about the reality of Christ being raised from the dead and getting ready to eat this meal that pictures Christ's sustaining work in the lives of believers. Eutychus falls out the window and he dies and he's raised. I can just imagine that as Paul has been preaching, you know, he had just written the book of Romans. Maybe he was, he was giving them a little bit of what was in there because they don't have that letter yet. And he's like, do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And Eutychus is a walking example of the proof of this reality. As Jesus is raised from the dead, we who trust in him will have eternal life and will also be raised as well. Yet, somehow, it's still possible for us to hear these words and just and nod our heads and then go about our day as if nothing has really changed. We believe it, but we also can forget its implications in the present. We hear it often. Maybe it feels common. Let us not forget that God raises young people and his, those who place their faith in him back to life. Let it hit like a lightning bolt, jarring you from what be, might be just some comfortable doctrine that you, that you haven't thought about in a while. Let it wake you up. Because what Paul is saying is true. There was no little amount of rejoicing, as Luke might say, in the believers who were gathered together in Troas. But do you notice what happens right after Eutychus is raised from the dead? They don't go, you know, we've had enough dead bodies tonight. 
We need to, we need to break up this gathering before we, anything else happens, right? That's not what happens. The church doesn't disperse. They don't go to bed for the night. They go back into the upper room and they share that communion meal together and they talk until daybreak for when, when Paul has to leave. You know, I can imagine Eutychus's mom's holding him super tightly in the pew or whatever they're sitting in, but the gospel is so central to their gathering that they cannot do anything but keep talking about Jesus. And so instead of quenching the fire of these believers to hear the word of God, this healing of Eutychus has stoked the flames so they want to hear more. How much more eagerly would you want to hear what Paul has to say after this sort of resurrection? What kind of questions would you want, to, would you want him to answer as you're thinking about the implications of, of following Jesus for the rest of your life? And brothers and sisters, as we look around, the reality that we are gathered here this morning is ample reason for us to eagerly want to delve into the delve deeper into the glories of Christ. For each one of us who are in Christ have experienced a spiritual resurrection that the physical resurrection here points to. We know this from Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up and with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. As we're gathered together, this is a true testimony of who we are, the raised bride of Christ. And we see the power in that. But sometimes it's hard to remember the power of the gospel or to see it. You know, our worries or, or troubles or, or doubts can seem so close, feel so consuming, that we're not able to see past them for a time. It's like when you hold up something in front of your eyes, maybe when you were a kid and you would, you would hold your hands in front of your eyes or if you've ever taken a coin or something like that and, and held it up to where it blocks out everything else except for it. That object isn't that big in and of itself. But doesn't it feel massive when that's all that you can see? When that's what you're looking at and, and nothing else? What are the objects that are blocking your ability to see Christ's power, majesty, his glory, his goodness this morning? See, one of the ways that your vision might be blocked from seeing the glory of Christ is, is through distraction. Frankly, you might not even be thinking about seeing the glory of Christ this morning because you keep thinking about the tasks that you have to get done for work, the things and needs that you have going on in your schedule. Or when you're sitting down to spend time with the Lord, your mind keeps drifting to what you have going on later or the email that you need to send out or the notification that just pops up on your phone. There's distractions everywhere. It's so easy to fall into that. And, and frankly, to be so, you know, caught up in whatever those things are that you, you don't see the glory of Christ at times. 
Another way that we can be blocked from seeing the glory of Christ is by feeling discouraged. This discouragement might be caused by problems that we see in the world. Frankly, if I watch like two minutes of, of news on a television, I feel super discouraged as I see these policies that, that are being put in by politicians. I just want to turn it off. But you might be discouraged by the hurt and pain of people that you see, not just that you know, but, but around the world. You may feel discouraged by the devastating effects of sin in the lives of those people that you love. Discouragement can also come in the form of hurt relationships or broken relationships where there's sadness and worry and a lack of clarity on how to proceed and what healing might look like. But discouragement isn't just also from things that are just on the outside, but also things that are going on on the inside. You know, discouragement can block my vision from seeing the Lord most clearly when I think about what's going on in my own heart. You know, and not doing the things that I want to do sometimes. You know, maybe I have a lack of discipline or time or just I don't want to do it. And many times it's in doing or saying the things that I don't want to do. As Paul alludes to in Romans 7. There can be so many different ways in which that discouragement can block our vision of seeing the glory of Christ. It could be other things too, like worry. Maybe so consumed in other people that it can keep us from seeing it. You know, those things get big and they block us. But when we keep our vision directed at these things, these things that discourage, distract, cause pain, it has a dimming effect on our ability to see Jesus clearly. And it's in these times that we need one another to remind us of the truth that Christ is even now victorious over our sin and all of his enemies. We need the truth of God to bathe over us, reminding us of who we are in Jesus and reminding us all the more of God's greatness and his power and his grace. Paul says at the end of Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But if you remember, the answer comes in the very next verse. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he follows up with Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what we need to be reminded of. When that thing blocks our vision, we need one another to say, that's not you. You are Christ and he is victorious. We need one another to help each other. You know, what do you do when you've been praying and reading and you, and you just can't see anything but that obstacle? Look to the living, breathing examples of the power of the gospel around you in the people that God loves and you love. It's not just that the gospel is precious to us, but these people that we are united with are precious to us as they walk alongside us, as you walk alongside one another. We help each other. When it's hard to see the power of the gospel, when it's hard to see the glory of Jesus, let's encourage one another. Let us point one another to the glories of Jesus and the power of his gospel. And this is one of the things that happened last weekend at the men's retreat. I was so thankful to be reminded of the power of God to transform the lives of 90 men in our church. 
where these men together with one voice are singing of what is true, that they have been redeemed by Jesus, that he has brought them from death to life. Each man a living testimony of the power of God to change a heart, to bring maturity, to heal us of weakness, to free us from the shackles of sin, and ultimately to raise the dead. There's a lot of times where we talk about the need to point each other to Jesus and the gospel, and it's true. We need that often. But also, one thing we can do is look to one another and to see the life-transforming power of the gospel in one another and be encouraged as we see what God is doing in our church and in each other's lives, as he's maturing us and growing us. We have great cause for hope and confidence. Brothers and sisters, one of the ways in which we're transformed is we look to Jesus. The way that we see clearly is we look to Christ. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we hear a glorious truth. And we all who are Christians with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are able to see him without a veil, unobstructed. We see him in his glory, and we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Our ultimate hope is that we will see Jesus as he truly is, and that we would be changed into his likeness. And in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, we hear that as Jesus is our ultimate hope, and as we look at him in faith now, we're transformed and we're purified. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You see, seeing Jesus is our ultimate hope and it helps us to be transformed. So we need one another to remind us. We need to look to the word to be encouraged in what is true. But also, when it's hard to remember or to believe the power of the gospel can heal you, let us fix our gaze to this table that's before us. For it is a picture of the love of God on display for the whole world to see. And most importantly for us to remember, as we fix our eyes and hearts on the sacrifice of Jesus and his gospel, we will be strengthened. You see, communion itself is a celebration of the life-changing power of the gospel. And so this morning, brothers and sisters, like the saints in Troas, we are gathered to take part in this communion meal. It's both a remembrance of what Christ has done, but also in what he is doing and what he will do. But be reminded of this, that every person that comes down and takes these elements together, each one of these is a person who trusts in Christ. Each person is a living illustration a walking, living Eutychus, someone who's been raised from the dead by Christ Jesus as they trust in him in faith. So let us, let us celebrate as we take this meal together in the picture of what is actually being celebrated, that each one of us who comes has been made alive with Christ. And we are his both now and forevermore. So let us remind one another Let's remind one another of the glories of Christ. 
Let us rejoice in the power of the gospel to save us and to raise us to new life with Christ. And let us continually proclaim the Lord's death until he comes because he is raised and he will return again. Brothers and sisters, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that we get to participate in communion and I thank you for what it represents. That you have taken people who were dead and rebellious and you have united them to yourself and given us life and you change us. The power of the gospel is clearly on display in this meal that we're taking together as it is in the gathered church and the transformation that you bring about in us. Father, help us be encouraged by this table. Help us to cling to Christ, our great hope. And Lord, I pray that we would uh, be thankful that we would be strengthened, that we would be encouraged. We love you, Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.